The scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. Um, if you're using the Bible in front of your bench or pew, uh, it's on page 42, or it's also on the screen. Um, I'll be reading from the NASB version. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, he hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it along the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she was pity, she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Then the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Riddled, riddled with a life of hardship, hymn writer William Cooper penned these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind belief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain.
History is full of saints whose lives have been marked by hardship. And instead of turning from and shaking their fist at God, they have leaned into the mysterious providence of God. God, why are you doing this? God, what are you doing? But at the end of the day, finding a resolve to believe that behind a frowning providence, behind difficult circumstances, for those that are in Christ, there is always a smiling face. The book of Exodus, which we began a couple of weeks ago, is a book that will keep the focus upon the man, Moses. That's the human focus. And yet the one who really steals the show, the one whom this book is all about, is God himself. We are invited to behold God in and through the book of Exodus. And as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it is good for us to behold God because in beholding God, we become like that which we behold. And so Moses has served us through the writing of this book that we would behold God. And as Paul would say, so that in beholding him, we might become more and more like him. The beginning chapters of the book of Exodus are intended to convince us that God is the one who saves. And he saves through unlikely and unexpected means. He also desires for his name and his glory to fill the earth. And that is why he acts. And that is why he does the saving. And as he does this, as God moves throughout the book of Exodus, what will be clear is that God is supreme over every other ruler and authority and little g God. And that's something that you and I need to be reminded of this morning. There is none, not even one, who is more powerful than our God. Solomon would put it this way, Proverbs 21. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. This is true of every leader that has ever been, that is, and that ever will be. The most powerful of leaders, even all the way down to the most ineffective of leaders. The not-so-powerful of leaders, like Lady Jane Grey. Lady Jane Grey. She's called the nine-day queen because she only reigned for nine short days. Lady Jane Grey was a genuine Christian. She loved Jesus. And when Mary ascended the throne and became queen in her rightful place, England was in the midst of a reformation itself. The Protestant way had become adopted by the, mon by the monarchy until Mary ascended into office. Mary would later become known as Bloody Mary because she began to have all the Protestant leaders killed. She reinstituted Catholicism as the official religion in England and so she decided to put Lady Jane Grey in isolation in the Tower of London. 
And while in prison, she wrote letters that still speak today. Hearing that her highly regarded evangelical chaplain, Dr. Harding, had renounced his evangelicalism and converted back to Catholicism, she wrote him a letter warning him of his error and inviting him to repent repeatedly to the living Lord. What I didn't tell you is that Lady Jane Grey was 15 or 16 years old when she ascended to the throne as the Queen of England. And so she is writing from prison as a young teen girl, pleading with men and women older than her to walk in a manner that's consistent of the calling with which they have been called. Her last letter to her younger sister, this is what she wrote. Desire, sister, to understand the law of the Lord your God. Live to die so that by death you may enter into eternal life and then enjoy the life that Christ has gained for you by his death. Don't think that just because you're now young, your life will be long. Because young and old both die as God wills it. So sister, deny the world. Defy the devil. Despise the flesh and delight yourself only in the Lord. Repent of your sins and do not despair. Be strong in the faith. Like St. Paul, desire to die and to be with Christ, with whom even in death there is life. In view of Lady Jane Grey, we're reminded that God has a way of graciously demonstrating His power through weakness. God graciously demonstrates his power through weakness. And in our passage this morning, that's what we're going to find. God puts unprecedented power on display through the likes of lowly and unimpressive people. And it's my prayer that we would experience the same truth through this sermon. That he would take this lowly and unimpressive sermon and do mighty things with it. And so to that end, I'd like to pray as we open the Word of God. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you asking you to help us, to meet with us, and so change us. God, grow our faith to be reminded that the most important thing about the Christian's life is not his or her circumstances. It's his or her God. And so use this passage and this sermon to expand our trust and grow in depth our love for you. You alone are worthy. And so take the little bit that I have and do much with it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, beginning of the Bible. Genesis is the first book. Exodus is the second book. Chapter 1 is the first chapter. Chapter 2 is the second chapter. This book really opens at a dark period in human history. We saw that last week as God's people have been led by God to Egypt, to this place where they prospered and they multiplied. And then we saw a new Pharaoh comes to power. And he's threatened by the size of God's people. He sees that as a threat to their national security. So what does he do? He comes up with the plan to make them slaves in hopes 
of stopping their influence and stopping their increase. But as we read last week, Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the people of God, the more the Egyptians afflicted the people of God, the more the people of God multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were the dread of the sons of Israel. Pharaoh goes to plan B, which is to make the male children of an entire generation go away. And so he comes up with with this plan of calling on Hebrew midwives who are going in to help God's people give birth to say, hey, any males that are born, kill them. The females can live. Pharaoh wanted to ensure this slow dying off of this quickly growing people. And just when it seemed that there was no hope for God's people, God had yet another move. You see, Pharaoh's mistake was that he commissioned two Hebrew midwives to carry out this plan. And these midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And so they kept the Hebrew boys alive. Again, so we talked about last week, don't miss it. God's mighty power of thwarting this world superpower comes through costly yet ordinary obedience of two lowly slaves. And so Pharaoh's last ditch efforts, the last verse we see in chapter one, was to evoke this genocide, to to call the entire Egyptian population to put to death the Hebrew boys by throwing them into the Nile River, letting them drown. Hebrew girls, they could live, but Hebrew boys, kill them. And so the despair and the hopelessness that we're meant to feel as chapter one comes to an end is interrupted at the beginning of chapter two. We're told of this unexpected and surprising of means by which God is going to deliver his people. And we're told of the birth of this deliverer. During this darkness, God brings forth his deliverer so as to shine forth his stupefying providence. Yes, stupefying. And you say, well, wait a minute, what's providence? John Piper is helpful here. When you think about a God who is sovereign, sovereignty is God's right and power to do all that he pleases. So when you think about God being sovereign, he has the right and he has the power to do anything he pleases. That's his sovereignty. Providence is the wise and purposeful use of sovereignty. Said another way, providence is God doing everything necessary to bring about his good purposes. And so this story is going to put on display God's stupefying providence. We'll see the stunning deliverance of this chosen deliverer in Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Three scenes that I trust will help us get there, beginning with the first one. God's deliverer is born and hidden. God's deliverer is born and hidden. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Look with me, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 
Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. And so you have, leaving Exodus 1, there's this large, this panoramic view, this wide lens scope of God's people. But then beginning of chapter two, there's a narrower focus on this particular family. And it begins with this statement about a man and a woman being from the house of Levi. This baby is an authentic descendant of Abraham. And that's important because the older he gets, the more Egyptian he's going to look. But from the very beginning, this is one of Abraham's descendants. And here's the other thing. You and I read Exodus chapter 2. We read the house of Levi and we think, okay, they were a part of God's people. When the original audience would have heard house of Levi, they would have been hearing this as God had already set aside who the house of Levi was and what their purpose was. You see, the house of Levi had been chosen and appointed by God to be the priesthood of God's people. You can read Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 to see. The tribe of Levi was the, was the tribe through which God was going to have people serve as priests, mediators between the people and God. And so when they hear, when the original audience would have heard that there was a birth that happened from the house of Levi, the audience would have been clued into the fact that God was setting this, this baby aside for some special service, some religious service, playing a priestly role. And in fact, that's what we find in later chapters in the book of Exodus. Moses serves, this baby serves as the priest, the mediator between God's law and his people. We're not given the name of these parents here, but in Exodus chapter 6, we learn their names. Exodus chapter 6, verse 20. The father is Amram, and the mother is Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed, they have a child. And in a day without ultrasounds, you can imagine both the sheer excitement that God would bring life. And then almost, almost immediately, you can imagine the sheer terror that would have fallen over this family as they thought, what if this is a son? If this is a son, then we run the risk of him being killed. Verse 2 informs us immediately that this is what they had. They did have a son. And you and I are meant to feel the dread that this couple would have felt. But then in verse 2, it says that Jochebed, the mom, saw that this baby was beautiful. Or this baby was fine, your translation may say. And so she hid him. Right? And so maybe we're left thinking, oh, what if the baby wasn't so good looking? Okay, maybe you're not thinking that. But let's just be honest. There's not a mother who doesn't lay eye on, eyes on her child, her baby, and who doesn't think, this is the most beautiful baby to date. And so what's happening here? Are, are we left to praise God because Moses wasn't ugly? Are we left to praise God because Jochebed wasn't having a bad day? 
Well, the further we begin to think about what Jochebed would have seen in this child, we can find that that word that's translated beautiful and fine is also translated as good. And again, original audience hearing this, they would have thought about what is it that's been good in the history? Ah, creation. Creation was good. It's the same word that's used all throughout Genesis chapter 1. And so what Moses wants to convey is that what she sees isn't merely a sparkle in her child's eye. This is a theological statement. She saw that this baby was good, that this baby was from God, that this baby would be a part of his plan. It's interesting, if you go back and read Stephen's sermon right before he's stoned in Acts chapter 7, he mentions the same thing, that Moses was beautiful in the sight of God. And so it wasn't that this child had a, fa- a face that would have been famous for a baby food brand. But even in his appearance, it's evidence to his parents that there's something unique and good, like God's good design good in this child. And so whatever it is that she saw, it led her to hide him for three months. Imagine... Jochebed, trying to keep this baby boy quiet for three months. Every time there's a cry on the inside of the home, just imagine the weight of worrying about if an Egyptian neighbor or an Egyptian soldier, an Egyptian guard is coming by. Imagine even Jochebed not even being able to get out because she's staying back seeking to hide her son out of fear constant fear of not having her son thrown into the Nile River. Every noise within her home or every noise outside of her home must have had her in some sort of constant anxiety. And yet we know that while anxiety must have been there at some level, what we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 is that it wasn't anxiety that marked these parents only. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so while there must have been some levels of anxiety in their home, the author of Hebrews wants us to know that there was great and greater measures of faith in their home. Faith led them to hide this child. And so with every reason to be driven by fear, these parents are driven by faith and they hide this son who has been born. And that leads us to our second section. Section number two, God's deliverer is abandoned and rescued. God's deliverer is abandoned and rescued. We see this in verses 3 through 7. And so again, God's deliverer has been born and hidden. And now listen, the story continues. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile. 
with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? At some point, it becomes too risky to continue hiding this child. So she carries out another plan. She plans to take a wicker basket. Your translation may say a basket of bulrushes. If you so want to use that. She plans to, to make it waterproof. She puts her son in it. She sets it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile River. Again, just think about Think about the level of faith it would have taken to give up this child and to do so in a, in a, in a, a most unorthodox of ways. The risk that you run in making sure that the, the little basket stays afloat, not to mention any animals that would have been near, not to mention into the very river that was meant to be a river of death for children like this. A basket made of bulrushes with tar and pitch. The last time that phrase is used, not with the word basket, but with the same word, is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. Where the Lord told Noah, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, and you shall make the ark with rooms, and you shall cover it inside and out with pitch. It's interesting, the only other time this, this word for basket is used is in Genesis chapter 6. It's the word for the ark. And again, the original audience would have heard what this mother was doing was making an ark to put into the waters, trusting that the Lord would deliver. I mean, signals and bells and flags would have been going off in all of the minds of the original audience. Moses could have used other words, but just as God brought Noah through the waters, Jehokabed has faith that God is going to bring her son through these waters. And you begin to realize this isn't a destruction plan. This mother had not given up hope. Instead, this is a rescue plan by which she lays hold of it and she goes about it because of her faith. She didn't give up and this isn't some last ditch effort to kind of cross, cross my fingers and just see. No, she's hiding the ark in this river among the reeds with the intention of her son being saved. Again, can you just imagine? Can you imagine putting a child into this ark. Just my sanctified imagination thinking this week, just I wonder what she was thinking as she walked away. And, and we're, meant, we're meant to feel this. Like this is costly. Moms, what would you do with your baby? What links would you go to save your child's life? And in irony that shouldn't be lost on any of us, she puts him in the Nile. 
Pharaoh demanded that this river would be the place of destruction for Hebrew boys. And yet in God's stupefying providence, it becomes a haven of rescue for this one who would eventually lead all of God's people through waters intended for destruction. Jehokabed didn't just walk away and leave herself to not knowing how it turned out. Verse 4, we're introduced into, uh, to someone else, Moses' sister. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen. Later on, Exodus chapter 15, we learn her name. Most scholars would agree that, this, uh, that her name is Miriam, that this would be the sister that is referred to later in Exodus 15. And so Miriam then is the security detail as she lingers near to keep an eye on her brother. And again, just thinking about the picture, you have one mom, this set of parents going against the edict of a mighty king, putting, putting this small child in this small ark among the mighty river, leaving a small slave girl to watch it all unfold. Friends, never underestimate what God can do through the weakest of instruments. And that is good news for you. That is good news for me. This was a woman who was in a patriarchal society. She was a slave in a culture where people treated her as property. She was on the wrong end of a law in that land, and yet she was not afraid to obey her God. She's a model to us. And God, in unspeakable, uh, just unfathomable kindness and grace, defies this supreme ruler of the known world. I wonder this morning if you're willing to risk everything to be used of God like this. Are you willing to risk anything to be used of God like this? Well, if you know that how the story of Exodus plays out, you may be tempted to think, huh, oh yeah, I can put, I can do that and this is what I'll get. Yeah, I think I can, yeah, I think I'm willing to risk it all. Let me just remind you, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, after the hall of fame of faith. People commended for their faith. And you see how good came from their faithful endeavors. You get to the end, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, and this is what you find. And others who trusted God by faith experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Like, are we, willing, are, we, are, are we really willing to risk it all? And understand that if you do, you may get Hebrews 11, 36 through 38. And the crazy thing about Hebrews 11, 36 through 38 is that Everyone who comes before Hebrews 11, 1 through 35, God is worth it. He was worth it for the first 35 verses. He's worth it for the hard last three. 
For some, being willing to stand for God ends in triumph. And for others, at least humanly speaking, it ends in sorrow, as it did for Lady Jane Grey, before the axe would come down on her head. She stood on the scaffold minutes before her death. She asked if she could address the audience, and this is what this 16-year-old girl said. I pray you all, good Christian people, to bear me witness that I would die a true Christian woman. And that I do look to be saved by no other means, only by the mercy of God and the blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. And I confess that when I did know the Word of God, I neglected the same. I loved myself and I loved the world. And therefore, this plague and punishment is happily and worthy happened unto me for my sins. And yet I thank God that of his goodness, he has given me time to repent of them. And now, good people, while I am still alive, I pray that you would assist me with your prayers. And she laid down her head and was killed. And so whether it ends in surprising deliverance, Exodus chapter 2, or whether it ends in sudden execution, Lady Jane Grey, are, are, are you willing to live only for God? Ever only, all for Him. The story continues. We're introduced to Pharaoh's own daughter as she has made her way down to the Nile in order to bathe. In the reeds where the baby was placed or close to it, it caught the eye of this Egyptian royal family member. And it's at this point as we read this story that we're supposed to go, oh no, (laughs) no, out of all of the people that would have found the ark, not her not Pharaoh's own daughter. She saw the basket. She encourages her maids to bring it to her. Her maids bring it to her. She opens the basket and the baby boy is crying. And in this moment, we're meant to just be reminded of the rushing edict, the the, the swift reality of this child. He is to be thrown into that river. The ark is to be... dumped over, and he is to drown to his death. And so in this moment, will this Pharaoh's own daughter, will, he, will she obey her father, or will she disobey him and risk death? Again, what would you do? What do you do when there are opportunities for you to meet needs, and they're costly? Pharaoh's daughter takes pity on this crying boy. Of all the responses that we read, this one would have been the one that would have shocked anyone. It's intended to shock us the most. She had pity. She had compassion on this child. Something in her heart is warm towards this baby. And do you remember the security detail? Moses' sister on the bank 
left there to watch it all unfold? She's there. Scholars will tell us maybe six to 12 years old. And maybe it was just a look or she overheard a conversation or she just acted in great faith. But she approaches, this slave girl approaches the princess of the most powerful people in all of the known world. I mean, just the faith that it took to step out. And so kids, can I just say a word to you? This is another place in the Bible where kids do really big things and God uses children to do big things for his glory. Moses' sister is serious about God's ways and she acts bravely to do something for God. And so children, don't think that just because you're small in stature that God can't do big things through you. He does. And kids, the reality is that your parents and the adults around you need to know this. That God does powerful things through weak instruments. And so children, I would encourage you, be thinking, how can you stand for God as a young boy or a young girl? What does that look like? And just watch how the Lord may be pleased to use tiny little you. And if you think, I'm not too tiny, well then, husky little you, mid-sized little you. And kids, I can just tell you that the first thing in even wanting to be of use in God's hand, the first thing is to come to Him, confessing your sin and trusting that the work of Jesus is what you need to be made right with him. I can remember, I thought I had done that around the age of eight and nine. And I can remember at the age of 17 when I did. And so my prayer, even this week, children, has been that in the days ahead, there will be stories of God's grace Allowing you, granting you faith so that you can begin to do big things for God, even at a young age. So how is this story going to end? Well, that leads us to our third and last scene. Number three, God's deliverer is adopted and protected. So we saw that the deliverer was born and hidden was abandoned and rescued, and now he's adopted and protected. We see this in verses 8 through 10. Pharaoh's, daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the young girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Moses' sister springs into action. And she makes known just the information that would have been helpful for this situation. She goes and she tells Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, do you need someone who would nurse this baby for you? 
And again, you just think about this and you think, wait a minute, did it ever cross this princess's mind that, okay, I find a baby, there's a little girl who at just the right time says, I know a woman who's ready to nurse. Did they, did, did, did any of this ever click? Well, we won't know until glory, maybe. But I just imagine the moment when Miriam returns to Yochebed. This young little girl coming back. Mom, I better get a raise. (laughs) Mom, you will not believe what just happened. And she announces that Pharaoh's daughter has had pity on her brother, on Yochebed's son. And Pharaoh's daughter wants her to come and to nurse and to care and to watch her son give, uh, nurse him back to health, to watch and give oversight to these formative days in his life. And so Jochebed is paid by Pharaoh's household to nurse and care for her own son who Pharaoh ordered to had killed I mean, just the stupefying providence of God. God is providing for his people. And now this baby, this baby belongs to Pharaoh's household. That means this baby is protected. That means when they're out in public and the baby starts crying, Jochebed doesn't have to worry about hiding him anymore. Cry all you want, son. No one can touch you. From a human perspective, no one could touch him. And we just step back and we see what the Lord is doing. Right? You read Exodus chapter 1 and people would say, God is not even really mentioned except for the midwives fearing him. Like, where is God at? He's forgotten his people. And you get to chapter 2 and you realize, ah, there's still stuff happening. God isn't being mentioned a ton. But Exodus chapter 2 pulls the curtain back. And we're able to see that while there's something that's happening on stage, God is indeed in control and he is orchestrating in stupefying providence the things that need to take place so that his people will be delivered. Pharaoh is defeated at this point by his own daughter. And it's setting the stage for what God is about to do for all of Israel. God could have shown up and he could have wiped Egypt off. He could have transported his people to the promised land. But he chose to work through weakness and through smallness, through difficulty and trial. And up until this point in the book of Exodus, this great unfolding of God's redemption, it's being moved along by women who are faithful and ordinary. And so there's this bad rap for Christianity that it is not a religion that promotes women. And I just read this and I go, no, there's no way you can say this. Like the picture is that women are courageous in their faith. They fear God and because of that, They're able to do mighty things in his hands. These women are just 
committed to caring for children. And so those of you that are birth moms, those of you that are adoptive moms, those of you that are not moms, your labors in caring for children are not in vain. You don't know all that God is doing, but He uses the ordinary obedience of men and women who love Him and who love His creation to unfold the plans that would save and bring redemption for his people. Phil Riken, in his commentary, says, With all these women against Pharaoh, maybe Pharaoh should have worried as much about the Hebrew girls as he did about the Hebrew boys. (laughs) And at some point later, this baby is turned back over to Pharaoh's home and is named Moses. And that name in the Hebrew sounds familiar to, uh, sounds similar to a word that means to draw out of. But that name, uh, that name also sounds similar to an Egyptian word meaning born of, born of the Nile. God's deliverance of this baby who will be his people's deliverer is stunning. Moses' safe passage on these waters not only looks back to the flood of Genesis, but it also looks ahead to what will happen in the Exodus. This child who was once doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree becomes the instrument of Pharaoh's destruction and the means by which all of God's people will escape Egypt. What we see happening with Moses as an infant is going to be replayed later with respect to God's people who were at the very infancy of their existence as a nation. And all of this is just stirred within us, this longing for the greater deliverer. Exodus is this, we're reading about this story that's in a story that's pointing us to a greater story. All of the Bible refers back to Exodus as a part, as a sign of this greater story where God will lead his people out of the bondage of their slavery to sin. And so we just, we're anticipating this deliverer who at the moment of greatest power, it appears like it's weakness and defeat. This, this one who would come, whose mother believed that God had great plans for him. This one whose life would be ordered to be terminated. This one who would come through the waters of judgment safely, whose name would even speak to his work. Jesus, Yeshua. God saves. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, thank you for being here. And I just wonder, after considering God's meticulous, stunning, stupefying providence, what or in whom do you place the weight of your life for the most important matters? I mean, when it comes down to the things that are bigger than you, that you can't control, who do you trust and what do you trust? You can trust others, you can trust yourselves for things that are manageable, but what about those circumstances that are outside of your control? Who is it that holds your trust? And my question is, why would you not trust in the God of this Bible? All in the book of Exodus, we find God's people staring down slavery that they're unable to set themselves free from. 
And we said last week that Exodus gives us a physical picture of a spiritual condition and reality for all of us. That all of us are staring down a slavery, not to a nation, a country, but worse, to a disease of sin that we cannot get out of. We're slaves to our sin, which means we are at odds with our Creator God. And as such, we will give an account and be punished. Everything holy about His hatred towards sin will be poured out on sinners. And it will be poured out both in severity. You will not get His goodness and in duration. You will be in agony and torment for eternity in a literal place called hell. And so not only does that weigh on you, is not, not only is that before you, but even a life on this earth of futility. That's what awaits you if you persist and stay in your sin. And God in great mercy, the one who delivered Moses and God's people will deliver all of his chosen people as they turn from their sin and they trust in the work of Jesus alone, his sinless life, his death on the cross as a substitute, and his resurrection from the dead. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may have come in, maybe even unknowingly enslaved to sin. You can leave free from it. If you'll turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ, if you'll talk to anyone in this room about what that means and how that looks, it would be our joy to walk you through that. I just want you to know there's no other place. There's no other place you could place your trust that is more secure than in the good providential care of our Heavenly Father. And so would you do that today? As we step back from this section, we're just also reminded of the surprising and the unexpected nature that God's deliverance sometimes takes. Again, seems to be an absence of God in chapter 1. We're met with His work in chapter 2. God oversees Moses' birth despite this edict to have newborn Hebrew males killed. The Lord didn't one day hear of this edict and think, okay, what am I going to do now? No, it's rather precisely by this edict that God would bring deliverance to his people. He's in full control of this birth and the circumstances around it that are threatening to undo it. And God doesn't remove Moses or the situation. He doesn't strike Pharaoh down. He could have done both of those things. Instead, he places Moses in the same Nile River that Pharaoh intended for the boys to die. And he brings the boy right into Pharaoh's doorsteps and he's going to be raised in Pharaoh's household. Why? Because God has chosen to defeat his enemy decisively at his own game, at the very heart of his enemy's strength. Now Israel's deliverer can grow up safely and securely, free from not only Pharaoh's wrath, but also from the slavery that he sought to impose. And as God's people were walking in the wilderness wondering why in the world did he bring us out here, this is what they needed to remember. That every step of the way, God was at work, caring for his people, 
bringing about his good purposes. And it's the same thing that you and I need to know as we wander in this world. God always has a plan, and he can use anyone, any means, by which to carry it out, even your suffering. He's in control every step. He uses even his enemies to work out his own designs and even his enemies to protect his own people. And so come to Life Church, let's learn together to read the hand of providence in our experiences. God is always on the watch. He's always working out his good purposes. His hand is in all things for our good. That's worth learning again and again and again, and it's worth believing again and again and again. And so this morning, we close our service by coming to this table. This is a table where we remember what seemed to be this point and moment of great weakness, which was in fact the point and moment of greatest strength. The work of Jesus on the cross and in the tomb God's people come back here regularly to be reminded of his providence and his grace. And it's based on his providence and grace that we have been saved. And that's what this meal is meant to do, to stir our affections for this God who is our deliverer. And so here at Covenant Life, the Lord's Supper table is open to those that have turned from their sin and placed their faith and their trust in Jesus alone. So it's open to Christians, Christians who have followed the Lord and identifying with him first in baptism. So it's open to Christians who have been baptized and who are members of good standing in a church that preaches the gospel that you just heard.